the best gift ever. That's what Jesus refers to when he talks about the Holy Spirit. So I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 16. We've been hanging out in John 14, 15, 16. I hope you're reading these passages, these chapters in your own study each day as you prepare for these messages, paying attention to what Jesus describes about the Holy Spirit. We talked about last week about the dwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so, I use that reference back to my own stuff, but if you've missed that message, I want to give you homework this week to go back, pull it online, or pull the podcast off that we have all the messages on our podcast again, and listen to that, because we're going to be building each week on where this is going. And so this week, we're going to start talking about what does the Holy Spirit do? What, what is the mission of the Holy Spirit? So today, I'm calling this Conviction Mission. And so if you join with me, John chapter 16, I'm going to read verse 7 and 8. Now we've focused already on the first part of this passage that I'm about to read, but I want to unpack that and then focus in for the rest of our time on the second part. So once again, these are the words of Jesus. He's talking to his disciples. These are the guys that have followed him for three years. And they really think in their mind that he's about to ascend to an earthly throne. And he has spent the last two chapters describing to them what's about to come. Now, they just shared the Passover, the Lord's Supper, the meal that we just shared together. And they think that this is on an upward trajectory now. That finally it's going to come into the, the cabinet and the administration of Jesus. And it's going to be a place where they get to take over. So when Jesus begins to tell them things like, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to be turned over and betrayed, and I'm going to leave you shortly. And my exit's not going to be anything easy. It's going to be an execution. You can understand the grief that they have. And so in verse 7, to encourage them, Jesus is laying out what he says. It says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Once again, this is better for you that I actually go. Unless I go away, the Advocate, and there's his reference to the Holy Spirit, will not come, but if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is leaving. He's leaving a parting gift. He's bringing the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, to be with us. And then in verse 8, he tells us what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Now, he describes lots of different functions about the Holy Spirit. We're going to zone in on this particular sentence that Jesus does to describe the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will prove... Okay, there's the first word that I want you to do. I want you to circle that word or highlight that word if you're following your text. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus is now starting to unveil what the Holy Spirit will do when he comes. When he comes, and once again, we said the Holy Spirit is not an it, it's an identity, it's a person... It's a persona of the Godhead. When he comes, he's going to do something. He's going to prove. Now, that is a word that has lots of different connotations, and it means both things like an argument, maybe in a legal sense, but it has to do with the actual idea of revelation. So if I'm going to prove something to you, then what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you my evidence. I'm going to bring forth a case and prove it to you. Anybody ever do... Um, 
10th grade geometry. That's when I had geometries in the 10th grade. And we had to do proofs. If you wanted to prove that angles were congruent, you had to show some steps, and you gave your evidence. You exposed. So this word here, that this word prove, can be translated a few different ways. It can be prove, it can be exposed, it can be convict. All of these mean the same thing. And it's this idea that something is going to be unveiled. Something's going to be revealed. And if you're going to talk about even a court case, if a court case, when somebody is convicted, they're revealed to either be guilty or innocent. And so this idea of something being brought into the light, this is what Jesus is saying. Let me show you the word again. If you have a Bible, and I want you to mark your place where you are, but if you want to jump with me or make a note, John 3, so still in the same book of the Bible, but John 3, 19, says this. This is Jesus, and he's using the language of darkness and light. And you're going to find this language all the way through the Gospel of John. In fact, it begins with darkness and light. And he returns to it in the, John chapter 3 and says, This is the verdict. And once again, language, the word's coming from Jesus. Light has come into the world. He's referring to himself. Light has come to the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And we know that to be true. When you're trying to hide something, when you know that you've gone off, uh, off the path and you're something you've betrayed, something your spouse, you betrayed a parent, you've done something that you should not have done, you know that the last thing you want is you want, you don't want that to be revealed. You, you want to keep that hidden. There's something in us that we want to keep something hidden. And Jesus says, no, no, I've come to bring things into the light. Even if though you don't want it to be there, I want to bring it into the light. And so he completes the verse with this. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Circle that word. Same word. Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes, it's going to prove, it's going to reveal something to the world. And what we need to take away from this is our blindness, our spiritual blindness, cannot be taken away simply by our better effort. Supernatural intervention comes into play to reveal to us that which we are working really hard to keep hidden. Are you with me? came across a great way to illustrate this. If you've seen on... Uh, YouTube, there's a popular post on social media now. For those that have, that have color blindness, there's a new set of glasses they developed called the Enchroma glasses, and some of you may be colorblind, and you may have heard of these. But when you put the glasses on, the world that was almost monotone, almost one, one to two to three shades of, of, of color becomes vibrant once again. And in Chroma has a real great sales pitch. They encourage people that, to film their loved ones the first time they put the glasses on. So let me show you. This is a man named Roger, and Roger's family got together to surprise him with a set of these glasses, and Roger's been colorblind his entire life. If you would, watch this. Don't break it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Color for 
called it colorblind. I am colorblind. I don't know. Now these are these are special glasses. You can't have been engineered that when people wear them that are colorblind, you get to see color just like we all see. <laughs> and it came with balloons and all that. Oh my goodness. I can put these on and it'll just like it was supposed to be. It'll like correct, how we all see it. It'll yeah. correct your eyes so that you'll see how it's supposed to see it. It's so clear I can't believe it. Dad, do you Thank hate you. it? Golly. See the balloon color? <laughs> Golly. Papa, look at the hat. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Not pink, is it? I watched dozens of those. Unfortunately, most people were so overwhelmed they dropped an explicit right in the middle of um, their being overwhelmed. So it was not church appropriate. But you get the idea. And each one of them would go on to describe, and that's why they have all the balloons with the different colors, and most of them would say, I thought the, color, the balloons were all the same color. And they would start pointing out the different colors. And a life spent seeing one way, suddenly it gets proven, it gets exposed, and they're convicted that it's different. That is what Jesus is saying the advocate is going to come and do for us. That it will prove and expose something. It will bring something from the darkness into the light. And remember, we do not overcome our own blindness we don't train ourselves out of it. It takes an outside agent, a supernatural agent, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to show you how this is at work. Because notice what he says. He says he will prove the world. So he's not just working in the life of a believer, and we're going to come to that in just a second, but he's working out in the world, and I'll show you where that comes to play. If, you, if you're familiar with the, the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a story, and we call it Acts of the Apostles. And the apostles are the guys that followed Jesus in his early ministry, and they carried the ministry forward. But the book should be titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit continues to move and is the vehicle by which the entire book moves forward. Well, so when Jesus returns and is ascended back into heaven, he tells the apostles, he says, you're going to be my messengers to the ends of the earth. But the first thing that you do, the first command he gives them is to go into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit arrives in a very dramatic way on what we call Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit descends, and Peter stands up in this crowded area with um, Jew and Gentile together, and begins to preach. And he preaches what we consider the very first gospel sermon. And as he preaches, he begins a message about... Now, this, I want you to pay attention to this, because many of us have grown up thinking... Of, we think the we know what the message is about. But what Jesus does, and I want you to go back and look at it when you get a chance, he preaches a message about the coming of the Spirit and God coming close to be with us. 
and he builds his case and builds his case, and then what he does at the very end, he lands in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And for many of you, that's going to be a very familiar passage. But I want to suggest that perhaps one thing that we've done is we have focused in on one part of this passage to the detriment of the rest of it. It's like I had a friend in high school that uh, he broke his arm, and back in that day, when they put a cast on, it was the kind where you had the plaster and everything, and they, they set it all the way up to like mid-bicep, and so his elbow didn't move and everything. So he had an arm that was pretty much immobile for six weeks. Well, he was in shape, and so what he wanted to do is he wanted to continue to work out, so he continued to work out his right arm. Well, that looked great until six weeks later when the cast came off. He had one that was well-defined and one that was nice and flabby because he hadn't exercised that one equally. I think sometimes for those of us that are very familiar with this verse, we've exercised one part of it, but not the second part of it. So I'm going to set that up so you hear it with a fresh hearing today. So, Peter has preached this message. He talks about the one that they killed, the one that crucified Jesus. And then remember, he's talking about God coming close, and they lean into the message, and they want to know, how do you do this? And he says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, totally convicted on that paragraph. And most of us say, yep, that's what that is all about. But I want to focus in on the next sentence that he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That dwelling, that indwelling, that filling that we talked about last week. Here comes the gift, the salvation, the, the grace of Jesus in his name, the forgiveness that comes for the sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, God in you, comes with this. This is how the Holy Spirit is received by the believer. And as you continue to read Acts chapter 2, you learn something incredible happens. That 3,000 people that day give their life to Jesus. They, they become followers. They're baptized into his name, and they receive this Holy Spirit. Now, if you know anything about Peter, Peter is a salty fisherman. He is not a trained preacher. So I want to ask you, how in the world did his message have that kind of effect? I'm going to suggest it's not because of his eloquence. It's not because of all the arguments that laid out. Now, it's a powerful message. I'm not taking anything away from Peter, but I'm going to suggest that what Jesus predicted, what Jesus promised is coming to pass, is coming to fulfillment, and the Holy Spirit was there exposing, bringing into the light, proving what Peter was saying to the miraculous amount that 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus on that day. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, go back to our verse. He said that he's going to prove to the world, and then Jesus gives a list of three things. So John 16, 9. Here's what the Holy Spirit's going to prove to the world. It's going to expose, going to convict the world of. 
He says, about sin, because people do not believe in me. He says, sin, righteousness, judgment. And the first one is, because they don't believe in that it's going to prove them about their sin. Now, what he does with each of these is he unpacks, he unpacks exactly what he means with that. This is where a great passage where Jesus gives his own commentary. He wraps up his own message. So the first one, about sin. Because the people do not believe in me. Notice that he doesn't say about their sins. He's not talking about their sins in general and all the dirty, rotten things that they've done or that you've done or that I've done. He's talking about one particular overarching thing. He says he's going to convict them of their sin, and then he tells us what that sin is. He says it's the unbelief in me. And this is a powerful thought because many of us still think that we are capable of saving ourselves. And the message to anybody that was hearing this this day is not that you're, that you're um, far from God because, or you're lost because of your sins or because of your, you're a sinner. The only way to be separated from God is to have the sin of not believing that you need a Savior. And so many times we try to be our own resource, our own pull ourselves up, get there by our own grit instead of trusting and relying on the grace that Jesus provides. You don't earn your way there. That is the unbelief that Jesus is talking about here, that the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of and helps us to come to that reality that I am a sinner, therefore I stand in need of the grace of God, and by the grace of God, only through the sacrifice of Jesus, do I have my hope and my confidence. Not in my spiritual resume, not in the works or the deeds that I can pull off, not because somewhere up in my mind I think I can maybe balance the scales back into my sense, back into my my category. So, the Spirit is outworking because people do not believe and they reject a Savior that's come for sinners. He says also about righteousness. He says it's going to prove the world to be wrong about righteousness. And then he explains, John 16, 10, because I am going to the Father where you can, where you can see me no longer. Jesus is talking about his separation now. The disciples had it where he was physically in front of them. And all the, even non-believers, got to see Jesus. He performed miracles in front of them. He loved on some people in front of them. He cared, he spoke, he taught, and people got to see this lived out in front of them. In fact, there was something so compelling about Jesus. Something about looking into his eyes. I don't know what it was, but his evidence of love was so strong that people that were nothing like him, there were not the church people, there were not the goody-goody people, there were not had the peop- their lives all wrapped up in a nice bow, but the people that were broken and they were a mess, and they were shameful of themselves, they were the ones that were drawn to him the most. They saw something in him, and what they saw was righteousness. 
and it drew them very close in their hearts. And so what Jesus is saying, he goes, I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit's going to be here to convict the world, to expose the world to what righteousness, true righteousness is. And how is it going to do that? As you look all through your scriptures, you learn the Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. The Holy Spirit is not here to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit has a mission to always put the glory and the attention to Jesus. Maybe this illustration helps. If you've ever been to a national monument, perhaps the uh, Mount Rushmore or the Washington Monument or something of an equal stature, I've, I've gone... I've, Several years ago, we took the kids to Disney World. And in the middle of Disney World or the middle of um, uh, Epcot is either the castle or the spaceship Earth. And I tell you what, Disney has spent some money on lighting those things up, right? They have some of the most advanced spotlights and laser systems to draw all kinds of attention to it. And so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people line up hour by hour to take their picture in front of the castle, or take their picture in front of Spaceship Earth, or take their picture in front of Mount Rushmore. You know what nobody lines up to do? Nobody lines up to take their picture in front of the spotlights, in front of the lighting rig. So, they're incredibly powerful. They're incredibly focused. They're incredibly efficient at what their, their mission is to do. And they reveal something else. Do you understand? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He is incredibly powerful. He is incredibly effective. He is incredibly supernatural at what he does. And his whole job is to reveal and expose Jesus to the world. Therefore, if you and I as baptized believers that have come into contact with the grace of Jesus Christ and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and now we have the filling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week. And that is the mission of the Spirit. What do you think we will do as a natural offset of that? Our lives will point towards Jesus and give Him the glory. This is why anybody that is full of the Holy Spirit doesn't have to tell you they're full of the Holy Spirit. Okay? If they do, they're full of something. Not the Holy Spirit. Because what happens is the Spirit does not draw attention to itself, but it gives all glory, all praise, all worship, all direction, all confession, all conviction to who Jesus is. And as people that have the best gift ever, God inside of us, that becomes our natural response. And then last... Jesus says it will prove the world wrong about judgment. It says, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And that's a direct reference to Satan. Now, I don't know where you are on Satan. Here we believe that Satan is real. That there is an evil entity in the world that does not have your best interest at heart that does not love you, but will be happy to serve up plenty of lies to distract you. In fact, you're going to see over and over again in John 
chapter 14, 15, and 16, that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. In fact, he does it ten times. And we're going to talk about that in, a, in a coming weeks. But for today, this idea of judgment and what the lie that Satan wants to convince you is, is you don't really have to stand in judgment. Or he wants to change the playing field on what the judgment's going to be. Because he has convinced so many of us that I'm good enough because somehow I'm better than somebody else. If I look out my window, I can point out somebody else that's a lot more of a retrobate than I am. Therefore, since I come in above them, I must be in the good enough category. We've fallen into the lie that says, if there's a good God that loves good people, then all I have to do is be one of the good people because the good God will take me to a good place at the end. Not the truth that I'm a sinner lost in the need of grace. And Satan wants to come in and sell that lie about what judgment is. And now Jesus is saying, but the Holy Spirit will now reverse the conviction and place the conviction onto Satan. See, if you notice all the legal language that comes in this, he describes the Holy Spirit early on as what? An advocate. That's a counselor. That's somebody that's going to make your case for you. You're not able to navigate all the legal uh, ramifications, so somebody's going to stand there for you when the conviction of the world is bringing its charges against you, and they're going to stand and going to speak on your behalf. And so that's exactly what God does. That's exactly what Jesus predicts is going to happen. In fact, if you read the first part of chapter 16, Jesus warns the apostles, warns the disciples, that there's coming a day very shortly where you're going to stand before courts and councils and powerful people, and they're going to try to bring a judgment against you. They're going to bring charges against you, but what, I, what he's encouraging with is the Holy Spirit's already going there. It's always going to be there proving them wrong and undoing their case. And this prediction came true almost immediately. So shortly after Pentecost, Peter and John, two of the disciples, they're entering into the temple. They see a lame man, a man that cannot walk. He's begging. That's what you did in that culture. That was your welfare um, strategy. Is that he, All he could do was to beg and receive gifts. Peter and John go to him, and they say something really incredible. They say, we don't have any money to give you. We don't have any gold to give you, any coins to give you. Now, if you're begging, at that moment you're thinking, well, please move on because you're blocking me. I need access to other people that may give me something. He says, but what we do have, we bring you in the name of Jesus. And then by the power of the Spirit, the man gets up and he walks. Well, this upsets the status quo. And people begin to gather around. They begin to praise the name of Jesus. And it creates a commotion. And so authorities come in and they drag them off to what's known as the Sanhedrin. It's a ruling council. Think of it as a Supreme Court in some ways. And they bring him in front. And this takes place in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read just a couple of passages out of Acts chapter 4, but I'm going to start in Acts 4 verse 8. Peter and John are there, and then look what it says. They're facing down the most powerful people that they know. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to see this again and again and again in the book of Acts. 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, and instead of backing down in that moment, he stands up and begins to profess who Jesus is. And he makes this great case. He said, if we're guilty because we showed kindness to a man, then let's be guilty. But we're going to keep doing this in the name of Jesus. And in verse 13, they have this incredible passage. When they, this is the powerful men, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, once again, fishermen, you know, they were working chums, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What made the difference in unschooled, ordinary men? They now had the Holy Spirit proving the world wrong on their behalf. And so they warn them to not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. They make their best threats. They puff out their chest and they do what they can. And this is Peter's response. Peter and John replied, I'm in verse 19, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. You hear all the legal language coming right back? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We will continue to take forth this message. Jesus sends these men, sends you and I, on a mission to speak in His name. And He says, and I'm giving you a helper to go with you. I'm giving you a helper that will clear the way for you. I'm giving you a helper to power that very mission. And so I want to give us three takeaways real quickly. First one is this. The Holy Spirit is in you and ahead of you. Wherever you feel led to go put a word in for Jesus, to speak in His name, to encourage a neighbor, a co-worker, a sister-in-law, a brother-in-law, somebody that you meet going through your day, and you have this, I need to speak on His behalf. I need to put a word in for Jesus. The Holy Spirit's already ahead of you in that. He's already gone out doing exactly what Jesus promised going to do, that He's proving the, wrong, the world wrong, convicting them of their sin, convicting their unbelief, what righteousness is, and a judgment. And He's already at work. And so your willingness to submit to the Spirit's guidance in that moment becomes a conviction and a testimony to the power of the Spirit. Because we're all unschooled, ordinary folks. But not just natural folks. Supernatural not because of anything that I've done or studied or learned, but because of what the Spirit is doing, once again, ahead of us. The Spirit is in me, and it's ahead of me as we try to put a word in, speak a word on the behalf of Jesus. This will take a different framework. This will take a different mindset as we start thinking about this, because so many of us think that once I become a Christian, my main job is just to be good. Because I've got to be good, because what I really need to do is I really need to protect my own salvation that way. I can't mess it up. So my number one job as a follower of Jesus is just to be good. 
the Bible never describes that that way. Those that have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, your job is to reflect the light of who Jesus is and point to Him. So this will give you a new conviction in your heart. God will expose, prove things to you, and it will have to do with those that are lost. The ones that are not yet in belief that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. And so the second takeaway for this is, is that if you're convicted with the Holy Spirit, you will talk to the lost about God. It may come in the sense of a holy hunch, as I call it. That you've got a sense that there's a neighbor across the street. You've got something that they need. You've got a message they need to hear. And maybe you've been quiet for way too long because you don't want to be viewed as weird. You don't want to be viewed as out of touch. What Jesus is telling us is that the Holy Spirit, the best gift ever has come... And it's already ahead of you at work. So whatever the conversation looks like, whatever the conversations look like, know that the Spirit's already there. My encouragement for you is to submit to that holy hunch. Submit to that burden that God has placed on. And as you grow and are filled with the Spirit, it will simply become more and more of a natural response. Tied to that is the, second, is the second one, or the third one, is this. You also talk to God about the lost. This will change your prayer life. You will, as you begin to pray, and that's a good place to start with this, as you begin to pray for God to show you those around you that He wants you to be taking this message to, He will honor that prayer. It, and it will be honored in ways that you can't even begin to explain it outside of the work of God. And you will suddenly have yourself, conversations will become available to you. They will call you, guaranteed. Somebody you've been praying about. They'll reach out to you in a, in a way. And you'll be confronted by this, th- this moment of, is this what you meant, God? And my encouragement to you is, is to remember that the Holy Spirit has already gone ahead. And so in that moment... I want you to take the next faithful step. And it's scary, I get it, if you've never done this before. Because you don't know, are they going to think you're weird, um, some kind of holy roller, somehow you think you're better than them. I get it, but the Holy Spirit's at work. And so let's trust that. And so as you step out, as you speak in name, you speak in the name of Jesus, you will be praying for those opportunities and you'll be talking to God about the loss. Because what you're doing when you talk to God about the loss is you're talking to Him about His children. And you and I can argue about lots of things. But if you want to come up and talk about how much you care about my kids, let's have that conversation. We'll have it all day long. And that's where God is. He would love to talk to you about His children that He loves so much and so desperately wants to bring back. So I want to pray for us. As we pray, I want you to think about a couple things. I want you to think about who told you about Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit was at work in that moment as well. 
who is at work proving to you who he is. And now I want to ask and let you give a moment, perhaps in quiet silence, for you to ask God to place somebody on your heart that you need to speak a word for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for those that prayed for me, for those that spoke a word so that the Spirit could do a work in my life to prove to me who Jesus is. I'm grateful for mom and dad that did that. I'm grateful for a youth minister that did that for me. I'm grateful for a shepherd, an elder that did that for me. And I'm grateful for a Bible class teacher that did that. So, Father, as we each reflect, help us to realize those that had been in prayer for us, those that had been convicted by the Spirit to talk to you about us and then talk to us about you. Father, I also ask that this moment for all those that are baptized into the name of Jesus, that have received this gift of the Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in us today and you would lay a name and a face on our hearts. And you would wrap us with conviction that we need to speak. And maybe it's a walk across the street, maybe it's a phone call across the country, maybe it's a text message, maybe it's an email, maybe it's an invitation to lunch. Father, the thousands of different ways it can come to be, but would you lead us into each of those? As you put that face, that name, that heart, that life before us. Father, I ask that you let it be a burden to us. Not a burden of shame, but a burden of opportunity that we can't shake. And then help us to trust that you have gone ahead of us and you are already convicting and exposing and proving. Father, I ask all this in the name of Jesus. And may all of our lives reflect his glory and not our own. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.